This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Epstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cotton wool clouds, In 1980, Peter Panagor had a near-death experience where he died on the side of a mountain in Canada during a skiing and ice-climbing break from college. He tells that story in his book, Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death Was Just the Beginning. So 39 years ago, it's been 39 years since you Mm, had your... 1980, yeah. Yeah. So you're about my age, I would say, maybe a few years younger, and your near-death experience occurred on the side of a mountain up in Canada in the middle of winter, Mm. and you were young, you were in college at the time, and to me, the idea of mountain climbing, ice climbing in the winter, of course, ice climbing you you do in the winter. You don't really want to do it in the spring. That would be too dangerous. Or, or the summer. Or the summer, right. That would be even more dangerous. Yeah. So to me, that, that just sounds like a crazy thing to do to begin with. But, <laughs> but human beings are, are notorious for doing crazy things. I mean, we love to explore the limits. And I suspect that was part of what you were doing. I was trying to understand. One of the things I was trying to do was understand how to control my fear mm-hmm. and to focus my mind and to be present in the moment and to find a way to learn to be courageous. Huh. Why? Well, I don't really know the answer to that question. <laughs> I just know that I wanted to be able to master myself. Mm. Maybe that's the answer. I wanted to be able to master a part of myself. I, I'd been a Boy Scout. I'd been backpacking for years. I'd been in, uh, slept in wilderness situations in the winter, in the summer, in the spring, in the fall. I wasn't a newbie to the winter experience of survival in the winter, in the wilderness. I was a newbie to ice climbing. Mm-hmm. I had technical climbed, rock climbed a fair amount. But ice climbing just intrigued me. I mean, I'd never done it before, and I had an offer, and I had a lead guy, a, cl- a certified lead climber who was my backcountry snow-caving 10-day wilderness experience partner. Mm-hmm. You know, we had just finished that, that part of our trip, and learning about myself was why I was there, really. But it sounds like you weren't particularly afraid of these kind of things. I mean, you... you... You ate that stuff up. I ate that stuff up. I, I, I kind of been, I guess I was 
born a, a risk taker, mm-hmm. and I've been a skier. I, and, and you know, in, in when I started skiing in the '70s, maybe even in the '60s, I guess it was in the late '60s I started skiing. Skiing was a dangerous sport, and it's still a dangerous sport. And when you get to the higher levels of skiing, you have to really be able to focus your mind and have some courage. And so I w- my favorite sport was a practice of learning to have courage and learning to be able to trust my body and use my mind to not only control my body in, in, in rapid motion and in space, um, but also to control my mind so that I would not get hurt in those things. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just ate that up. I mean, I, st- I still, I'm not ice climbing anymore, but I still, uh, I'm safer about my sports, but I'm a stilt walker. I mean, that's a, you know, that's a risky thing. Uh, it's fun. It's easier than it looks, but you only get one fall. <laughs> you say it's easier than it looks? Oh, it's much easier than it looks. Huh. Because I, I tried once. You, you, have, to, you have to get in, it initially. You do. You have to learn how to do it. But once you learn how to do it, it's really just a practice of falling. It's preventing the fall every single step. It's kind of like... What Laurie Anderson says, when you're walking, you're, you're just falling. Yeah, that's, yes. And walking and falling. All the time. Yeah, all and, the time, exactly. And that's, still walking is that, but it's exaggerated, of exa- course. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's interesting, because when I was a kid in New York City growing up, Bread and Puppet Theater was, mm. was in mm. Lower Manhattan in our neighborhood, and my father knew Peter Schumann. Mm. And they had just, I remember going to their hand puppet shows, but then around 19, I think it was 1968, they, they graduated to mm. tall stilts and their, their giant puppets, you know, Uncle Sam and Mayor Daly and, and all those characters. And they were all of a sudden, these people that I had watched doing hand puppet shows were up, up like 10, 15, since I was a young yeah. kid, I thought they were like 20, 30 feet in the air, but they were only maybe 10 feet up in the air. And that was really magical. It's, it's magical. Puppets, still walking. I'm, I love that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I, I, I was a risk taker, and I'm still a risk taker. I'm more calculated with my risks now. I'm older. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I know more about the world. But at the time, I was challenging myself, and I'd been challenging myself a lot in those years. I left my home in Massachusetts and I went out to Montana for a year by myself to be in this university for a year and I was doing a lot of that kind of stuff. And you would have been okay most likely if you had just had the money to to be able to afford two ice axes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it was a funding issue. And if I had been able to afford two ice axes, I, I didn't own the, the hammer and the axe I was using. I rented those from right. the outing club, but they only had one hammer and one axe. And I remember from reading the story that you were really pinching pennies just to be able to even rent equipment. Like you even rented the boots that you wore. Uh, well, I, I, well, no, I bought, I bought... Oh, you bought, I, I bought used... Oh, that's right. I, oh, you bought, you no. bought those ancient <laughs> ski, ski boots. boots. I had a pair of those I did ancient... too. <laughs> And they were, like, ridiculous. They were painful and, and almost useless. All they did was connect you to the skis. Yes, and they, they were very stiff. And yeah. for those of you who are old skiers, they were the, the leather black boot with the – they were, like, the, one of the first buckle boots. Yeah. And they came just above the ankle bone. Right. And they were super stiff. 
black leather with stitching on the outside. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I remember those well. But there, yeah, I was pinching pennies. I borrowed my sleeping bag so that I have a serious, I had a three-season bag. I needed a, you know, a winter bag. I borrowed that. I, I bought a backpack. I bought my skis and my poles, and I had a tent, and I had other stuff. But in terms of ice climbing equipment, I had nothing. Mm-hmm. So it was the rental of the crampons, the purchase of those boots at the at the you know the uh, used clothing store, mm-hmm. um, and all the rest of the gear belonged to Tim. Mm-hmm. I can totally relate. I grew up poor. I did all my shopping at thrift stores. Thrift. That's the word I'm looking stores, for. Yeah. Thank you. And back when when I was that age, I I was skiing too, and any money I had went to buying. Yeah. Good equipment. <laughs> right. Because when you're doing serious, you know, downhill skiing, you need good equipment. Yeah. The better you only can ski to the level of your gear. Exactly. If your gear's really good, you can become a good skier. If your gear's not, you can't. And in terms of safety too. Oh yeah. Like you have to have good bindings that they're gonna hold you to the level of your ability yes. and also release you when you get to that point where it's either your leg or the binding. That's right. And so gear matters. And I made a huge mistake pinching my pennies because I couldn't go out and buy axes. They were way too expensive. I looked at them. How much How much were they? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember okay. that. But all I know is that... Because I'm, I'm thinking I've never done ice climbing. My younger brother does all that stuff. He's an extreme skier and extreme mountain biker. He's like you, fearless and loves to push the limits. He, he's an adrenaline junkie. And, uh, that's and kind that. of what I am. Not me. Or we, used to be, anyway. We're, we're brothers of, of different mothers. So, and he's 15 years younger than me. I grew up, you know, I was terrified. I was a coward, basically. Not totally, but compared to him, I, I, <laughs> there's no way. <laughs> no, I'm no not way. doing that. <laughs> I'm not jumping off 75-foot cliffs right. on skis. Right. And I'm not skiing at full speed through the trees. Oh, I still do that if I can. <laughs> <laughs> yep, as fast as I can go. And control. That's the whole that's the whole and, and that's the same with ice climbing. I as far as the one trip I took, which killed me, um, it's all about remaining in control of self and environment as as much as you can. Right. And having the right equipment yeah. <laughs> makes a big huge difference. A huge difference. Right. So do you want to tell that story? Yes. And um, stop me uh, or, or speed me along. Um, it's because I can begin in one of two places. I can begin uh, on the harrowing climb mm-hmm. or I can just cut to the chase of my death. Um, what would you prefer to do? I mean, we have a fair amount of time. You've told this story many times. You can tell it any way you want. You don't need to go into as much detail, but I think my I'll listeners would, would probably enjoy hearing the story. I'll, I'll tell some of the story, and the rest of the story, of course, is in the book. And I'll, and um, I'll just I- introduce – you said this was a 10-day trip that you took. It was, altogether. And at an earlier point, you had had this experience. There was this lake that you guys skied across, <laughs> oh, yeah. and you were looking for this cabin that was on the map, and you couldn't find the cabin, and it got dark. And finally, in the dark, you guys were realizing – you're in danger of freezing to death out there. And you discovered the remains of the foundation of the cabin, and you realize it, this burnt, is, it burned down. This is the cabin. <laughs> We're in trouble. Right. So you had a, a pre-taste of, 
of what was to come. We did, and that was the of the of the back country ski that we went on that was the worst night and it was our first night and we so we skied across this lake got to the other side with our map as you described you know using my compass and my boy scout skills and for a long time it was like how can i be wrong how come the cabin's not right here where is the cabin mm-hmm. and then i'm skiing along and my ski got hooked underneath the remains and i you know and i dusted it off and there it is blackened and we had left the tent in the car because we had planned this trip to go from cabin to cave. We were going to, because we could build a cave um, and then to cabin, et cetera. So we had, we had the gear to build snow caves, but we were on the, uh, the windward side. There was no snow. There was like eight inches of snow where we were. We couldn't build a cave and the sun went down and um, we were in trouble, and so we went. We talked about going back to the car because we didn't. We knew we were gonna freeze. And as we skied out to the edge of the lake, there was an overflow of ice that was like a like a overhang above the lake, and it was maybe a foot and a half from the ice of the lake to the ice of the flow. And so we created a cave. We bought, got a bunch of ice chunks. And we broke them off, and we closed this thing off on three sides, and we tucked our sleeping – we well, put our tarp down, put our pads down, put our bags down, and then we snuggled into this thing, into like this cave where my nose was touching the ice flow, and my back was on the ice, couldn't roll over. We, you mean above you? Above me. Oh, yeah. As I'm lying on my back, it's like my nose is, is touching the ice. If I lift my head a centimeter, boom, it's touching the ice. And uh, there was just enough room in there for the two of us. And all night long, the ice was booming, and because ice booms, as you right. all Cracks you monsters and... know, temperature changes. The bo- it's yeah. a booming and cracking, and, and the flows cracking, and it was a little nerve wracking. But we made it through the night, and we didn't freeze, and we laughed about it in the morning, and and off we went, you know, skiing for the next seven days in the backcountry, and had a great trip. Uh, really, it was fantastic. Skied back out, went up to Jasper, bought some food. Came back to at sunset, uh, just north of this climb on the Icefields Parkway. Spent the night with a ranger uh, because we we went we were going to go check in, ask him where we can set up, and then we're looking around his cabin and we're like, "You got bunks? How about if how about if we made it? We made a deal. How about if we cook you dinner and clean up? And this is what we're having. We just went to Jasper. We're happy to share it with you if you let us sleep in here tonight, and we'll be out of here in the morning." And he agreed, so we cooked him dinner, we cleaned up, we went to bed, got up the next morning, signed into the wilderness log, drove whatever it was, five miles or ten miles to the ice climb. Um, right on the So picture this, there's the Saskatchewan River, then there's the parking lot, then there's the ice fields parkway, and then 70 yards in is this ice face, up you know, 70 yards into the woods. And um, when we got there that morning... Tim, want to emphasize here, he was a certified lead climber, and there were other teams there. That's a world-famous place. If any of there are ice climbers out there, it's a Weeping Wall, just to name it for you, Weeping Wall. We climbed in a lower part of it. And so there were maybe 10 other teams, 12 other teams, I don't remember, and um, they had all started. We were the last team on. I was using a hammer in my right hand and an so a axe quick, in my left. A quick question. How long would it normally take someone to climb? I and it's it was about five hundred feet. About five hundred feet and um, vertical. Vertical. Ice. Ice. (laughs) Right. Vertical ice. Right. That seems 
like that would take a lot of endurance and strength to climb up a 500 foot wall using ice axes it is. and crampons. It's not as it is physically strenuous, but not to the you're not always gripping and hanging on. You're using your gear to keep you in place and you can relax. And so the way the you know, once you kick your your shoe your uh, crampons into the ice Provided you have finger grips, you're not supporting your legs. The crampons are. You're expending some energy to to um, keep yourself steady, but you're not like holding yourself up by yourself. Okay. And then with the with the axes, uh, there's a shaft and a hole in the shaft with a piece of webbing through the hole, like I'd say a third of the way up from the bottom. I'm not sure of the measurement. And um, you put your hand through the strap, and there's a bead on the strap. You close that around your wrist. And you can plant your axe, tip in, point down, and then let go and just hang on your axe. So I, I want to and relax. Up. You've got the tip of the axe into the ice. Yes, and the bottom pick. The bottom in, pick into the up against the ice. Against the ice, so that's stable. It's stable. It's like a hypotenuse. It's right. it's, and you're strapped to. The axe. Yes, because you don't want to drop the axe either. One exactly. of the others why you got the <laughs> yes. strap on your wrist yes. is because, you know, you don't want to drop it. Okay, so you, you actually have four points of contact. Four points of contact. That's okay. right. And you only move um, one point of contact at a time. At a always time. maintain three. Okay. And so that's basically the setup for any climb. And in my right hand, I had a hammer. Instead of an axe. Instead of an axe. So what, what are the limitations, the well, differences the, between the two? Well, the hammer, first off, is not used for climbing. The, <laughs> the axe is used for climbing. The hammer is used for chipping ice. When you want to plant a screw, you want to you know, start it, you want to you know, maybe chip it in a little bit and make a little hole. Or it's also used uh, to put into the screw itself because the screw has, let's say the screw is a foot and a half long and it's an aluminum tube, just, mm -hmm. you know, guessing. And on the top end of it, on the bottom end, end of it, it's like an Archimedes screw, like, you know, your regular screw. And then there's a, a shaft without the screw part. And then there's like a hook. And the hook, you put the hammer into the hook and you use your hammer ah. as the lever to turn mm -hmm. the screw. Got it. And then you hook your rope, your carabiner and your rope into the screw. And mm -hmm. so the ha that's what the hammer is used for. But I only had, I, I didn't have an axe. And, and I knew that I could plant the hammer in the ice and tip the bottom into the ice and it would hold with lots of strength. But what I couldn't do was let go of the hammer and relax and rest. Uh, so, so normally an ice climber would have two ice axes and a hammer. Yes, correct. And you only had one ice axe and one hammer. Correct. Okay, so again, back to the question, how long would it normally take someone to climb that wall? Well, that's a good question that I can only guess at because I only climbed, ice climbed once. But you did, <laughs> but you did watch other, we did. other people, so, so, so you can estimate. So I can say that it was March and whatever time sundown was in March, say anywhere between four and five maybe, you know, in that latitude. If we were the last people there, we'd start an hour after sunup or so. So maybe, maybe less than eight hours, probably seven hours or less, I'm guessing, maybe even five hours if you're good at it. And so we started when, by the time we started was two, I could put it this way, by the time we started was a, an hour or so after sunup, maybe an hour and a half after sunup, um, we finished our climb 500 feet at sundown and all the other teams had, most of the teams had left and the last team was leaving. 
Olympics. Oh, so you didn't have to wait for for all of them oh, no. to finish their climb. We, no, You're all climbing at the same time. We are, but we were last up, so we were behind everybody. Okay. And there were different routes. We took a particular route, and there were a couple of other routes, and um, we took this particular route, and we ended up in a particular spot as a result of the route that we climbed. So then basically it probably took you about eight hours Probably eight hours for us to get to the top and maybe seven hours to realize we were in deep trouble. Right, because <laughs> <laughs> right. it, was get, it was getting dark it and, was, and cold. Well, yeah, it was getting darker and colder as the sun went down, as happens in the wintertime. Yep. It's also a wet sport, so you sweat a lot. And sometimes ice, we're wearing helmets, and sometimes the guy above you or the woman above you chips off the ice and the ice falls down, it goes down your back. Mm. Um, and that's just what happens. And so... I was wet, and even though I was wearing wools and some the new the new fangled polypropylene T-shirt underneath was a sleeved uh, undergarment um, and wool underwear, dual fold, and uh, I think I was wearing like uh, U.S. Army wool pants that were green, and gaiters and boots and leather chap gloves with rag wool mittens, which were super warm until you take them off and you get frostbite. and um, <laughs> Which you have to do periodically. You do have to do that periodically, especially we had to do it that night, and that's when I got in trouble with that. And a wool hat and a helmet. And a sixty, an old L.L. Bean, not old at the time, sixty forty jacket that I had sprayed off with silicone mm-hmm. to make it waterproof. Mm-hmm. And, you know, other, like a down vest and a ragwool sweater, I think. And so I was dressed great for the day. And this was a day climb, and everybody knew it. The fact that we were on there for the night was my fault and a big mistake. So by the time we reached the top of the ledge, it was sunset. But also sunset. a bit of Tim's fault as well, because he should have known better than to allow you to do the climb well, without I was, the ice axe. I was second. pretty persuasive. I mean, I, okay. I wouldn't let yes, yes to that. I mean, he definitely agreed. And he also wanted to do this climb, right. like, in a serious and, way. And you were both young. <laughs> you were both so young. no and... matter how experienced he is, he's still prone to... St- to the, the stupidity of youth. <laughs> yes, yes, and so yes, and so uh, if if we have to share that, I would share that with him. But it was really I was as gung ho as he was, mm-hmm. and also I was in super good shape. I was physically fit enough and mentally capable enough to make the ascent, and we did. We actually, you know, and just you to be love, clear, and you love a challenge, and I love a challenge. <laughs> I, I still love a challenge. If I'm not challenged, I get bored, and right. so. We did make the ascent. I made that climb with that gear. We just, it was way slow, <laughs> slower than it should have been. By the time sunset came, we should have been off the cliff. Mm-hmm. So we actually, you know what I'm thinking now? I'm thinking about the timing of people getting off. It took a couple of hours to descend, I imagine. You know, mm-hmm. you got to traverse and repel and traverse, say even an hour at the minimum. Because there's three... Three repels. Three now. repels. Right. It, you do it in three segments. We did it in three segments. And you only and your rope is only long enough for each. Yes. For like a third of, of the descent. Right. So you have to do three. Yes. Why not have a longer rope and do it in one? Um, you know, you and can, maybe the and rope's maybe, really heavy. Right. That was the other thing I was going to think. Maybe three times the weight would just yeah, kill you. Yeah, three times the weight, three times the bulk that you're carrying right. um, because you've got to carry your rope when you're not using it. Right. Um, so there's that. And yeah, as it was, our rope was um, like 300 feet. Oh, really? Yeah, it was a double line, So th- which meant that um, Tim climbed up and I was climbing on a single line up and a double line down. So this interview is it's actually getting into the... 
the, the nitty gritty of climbing. of climbing, which yeah. is interesting. I think people it, will find it interesting. And just to be clear to all the climbers out there, okay, it's been 39 years since I've climbed. That was my last climb. Oh. Uh, so I've done bouldering since, but that was my last climb. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm still a rope guy, just you know, I sail now, and so still hanging around ropes. But I never used ropes. I did. I went to the University of Colorado at Boulder, and I climbed up on the flat irons. Oh yeah, not I... the not the big one, but uh, free climbing. Free climbing, and I got into one hairy situation where I actually had to do a a leap. Oh yeah, kind of a hand leap. Right. Of about a. 12 inches. And you only have one chance to do it. And you only have one chance to do it. And because I was young and stupid and, and yep. interested in, in the challenge, the rest of the people I was climbing with went up this easier line. And I just thought, I'm not going to wait for three people to go up. I'm just going to go up this other line. I can do this. And you did. <laughs> I did. <laughs> but I got, into, I got to this yeah. place where it was hairy. And it was like, either I make it or I fall. Right. And, and you can't go down. Right, exactly. I could not go down. Right, in certain circumstances. Other circumstances you can, but yeah. in many you can't. Right. You got to go up. Plus, I was a totally inexperienced climber. Hmm. So. Well, anyway, we got to the top of the cliff, and uh, sun went down. Other groups have left, and frostbite began, hypothermia began, and we began this long night, which ended in my death. And in addition to the lack of an second ice axe, you had a, a mishap with roping around a tree for your first rappel. Yes. Um, the, the first problem we had before that even happened was that the, the rope ended up in a huge knot when we pulled oh, it up. Oh, right. And that took a long time for us to untangle it. A 300-foot rope you had to untangle. It, 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 was a, it was a lot of work. and I had to have my gloves off to do it. And um, How long did that take? I have no idea. Long enough that our jaws were clattering and we, were, we knew we were going to die. Would that have taken like an hour or more? Hour at least. At least. At least an hour because, you know, the sun had gone down, the moon had not risen, there was a a bazillion stars in the sky so we could still see, Mm -hmm. but it was still, you know, night. And cold. (laughs) And cold. And the rope was in a pile kind of between my legs and around me and I had to untangle the thing. And uh, that just took a long time. We hauled the rope up too fast because we knew we were in trouble and, you know, What's that? Haste makes waste, as my grandmother would say. And uh, we were hasty, and we wasted time. And fear. Oh, yeah. Stress contracts the mind and your ability to not only think, but the way you perceive the world around you as well. Yes. And And that's been scientifically documented. And and that's kind of what happened to us. And so we hauled up this rope, and then we had to untangle it. And hypothermia began in a serious way, and we... Using the reason that we had, decided we were going to die if we stayed, for sure, because we were both freezing cold, and there's no way we were going to get warm. And so the only choice we had for survival or chance was to move and try to descend in the dark. Uh, And then we made the first traverse, and then, like you said, we we had this tree. We were going to throw the—put a piece of webbing around the tree— um, and then run the line through the tide webbing so that the line wouldn't stick to the tree when you pull it down. Well, we didn't do that. We threw the rope around the tree, and we descended, and the rope froze to the tree. And then we couldn't get the tree, get the rope free. That took a couple hours. Um, we finally got that free, and we traversed over to the next rappel, and we went down that rappel. Off the ice, we're in the rock now. 
and around a corner onto a ledge where there were two iron pins with rings with straps that are permanently attached there. So we just attached the straps with our harnesses. Tim was to my left, I was to the right. And so the state we'd gone through clattering jaw hypothermia part with confusion, loss of mobility, inability to speak well because our lips were freezing, our hands got frostbite all over my, my to- froze. And Not my- to mention that you in particular were already exhausted from oh, yeah. the extra strain of using the hammer instead of... I was. Yeah. That is that is absolutely true. For eight hours. True. And, and we had eaten all our food right. and no more water. And so, yeah, I was, I was super beaten. Thanks for saying that. You know, I never really thought about that till you mentioned it, that I was extra exhausted, more exhausted than Tim. Well, you, you write I did, that. I did write that. Good. You wrote that in the book. That good. was clear in the book. It's good in the book. Okay. Yeah. I'm, you know, of the age where I forget stuff, yeah. which is why you write stuff down. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I honored that more in my life. Well, it's a, it's a hazard of being a writer for a living. Okay. Well, hazard, benefit. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, externalized my I, – I, I learned early on as a writer to externalize my memory. Yeah. And by doing that, I preserve it, at least what I – my perception of my memory. So anyway, the rope was up around the corner. Tim was to my left. We were clipped into the mountain. Now it's a couple hours, three hours before dawn, I guess. We don't really know. The moon had risen, so it wasn't completely dark anymore. And I – tied one end of the, the, what's called the bitter end, the end of a rope, tied the bitter end to my harness, tossed the other bitter end off to the side, and began to pull it through, and it jammed immediately. Now, why would you throw because to you, the side? Because I wanted to, so I'm on a ledge, and there's a cliff in front of me, 150 feet below me, and now right in front of me, about a foot and a half away, there's a wall, and then the wall goes over maybe two or three feet to the right, and then it turns a corner, and then there's craggy rocks um, in this shadow. And I, what I was trying to do by tossing the rope was prevent it from getting jammed. So I tossed the rope out to the side, giving it a wide arc so it could lay down as flat as I could because I couldn't see it because it had turned the corner and was on the inside of this crag. I tossed it out in order to give it as much chance of not getting jammed as possible. And that utterly failed. <laughs> so I did the right thing, but the wrong thing happened. And I have to say that The way I perceive the whole thing, that the way the rope actually got jammed just seemed like a one in a million thing. Like a one in a million thing. Because, you know, how many people climb that place? How many people don't get stuck there? Right. And what are the chances of the end of a rope actually getting caught like that? Well, it might not have been the very end of the rope that got caught. Any any part of the rope. Any section of the rope. Right. So, yeah, and on the first pull, it got in some kind of... You know, like a jam, like a V, or under a rock, or but something. you couldn't see it. Oh no, because it was, and no, I couldn't see it because so it, was, it was in that Schrodinger's cat box of unknown. It was an unknown, <laughs> and and in those unknown places that you can't see, anything is not anything, but there are things possible that that are beyond knowing. Knowing, and yes, and one of the things that was that was beyond knowing was how it was jammed for us. Exactly. So there was no way for us to tell at all. Um, And so I continued to pull on the rope thinking I'd be able to get it free, but I couldn't. It jammed in tighter. Mm -hmm. And so then I used my imagination that it's got to be caught under a rock. It's got to be caught under some kind of thing where it's not going to come loose because the more I pulled on it, the tighter it got and it didn't budge. It didn't. There's no give in the line. 
And the other aspect of it is that after you came back from dying, you just first pull on the rope and it just came free. It just like came nothing. free. Like miracle. Yeah. Now, and I've thought about that. Which doesn't surprise me from my perspective and the experiences that I've had and, and my, my relationship to the world. But when you think of it in terms of normal, materialistic, phenomenological oh, yeah. like, Right. How unlikely experience. is that? Yeah. That doesn't happen. Except or that's I, impossible. It's impossible. The only thing I could think of is that when I died and my body fell, that I dangled differently somehow. And right. I, don't, I, I, just, I don't know what happened. And one so, of those one in a million random chance occurrences. Yes. And yeah. the book I'm writing now is my third book. Um, I actually, the year before that, um, I had two mystical out-of-body vision experiences that turned out to be warnings, but didn't know it at the time, only could see that after I came back from death and with lots of processing. Oh, so these came before? They did. They uh, didn't show me what would happen, but they warned me that it would. Ah, that's interesting, because it reminds me, when I was a child, roughly around the age of nine or ten, I had a voice that clear as day said to me, you're going to go through a very difficult period of time, but it'll be okay. And did you believe that voice? Well, I had no idea what it was no. talking about. It was referring to but something. Did you know that it, what did you know after that? When you say after that, do you mean like as far after as like now? Yeah. Well, in hindsight, yeah. In hindsight, sure. But yeah, you can't know what you don't know when it hasn't happened yet. Exactly. <laughs> But it all makes total sense. Looking back. Looking back, absolutely. Sure. And, and I recognize that voice, and I had never heard voices in my life. I was not prone to that kind of a thing. I wasn't around people who, who had those kind of or experiences. Or at least they didn't talk about it because or they were rational enough, rational enough to think that other people would think they were crazy. Right. And, <laughs> I, and, and so I think that this happens a lot more than is popularly yes. known. People don't talk about hearing voices. No. Until it makes sense and they're in safe company and they're in safe company or or they don't talk about seeing their their spouse who died last week suddenly in their bedroom communicating telepathically that you know death is great right i'm this is I'm full of joy and things are great don't you worry i'm good right that happens a lot and people don't right. talk about it and it's like a catch-22 when nobody talks about it nobody feels Safe, safe, and they don't realize that how common an experience it is, which is one of the wonderful things about near-death experiences and how they are not that uncommon of an experience. Ten million in the United States right now. Wow. Yeah, and really? expand that globally. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. I had, I had no idea it was that many. It, well, it's because science is now driving spirituality globally because starting in the 1960s with cardiac care, people started coming back from the dead. And it wasn't just Jesus bringing back Lazarus and the little girl and Elijah bringing back the boy. You know, people have been dying and coming back for a long time, but not in these numbers because cardiac care and then the science, you know, the paddles, people are getting dragged. And then now there's chemicals that drag people back. 10 million in the United States alone. And everything from popping out of your body in the OR and the famous uh, seeing the red shoe on the ledge story. Uh, which any uh, there's a woman who died and lives, she lives in Seattle, and she wrote this story I don't know 20 years ago. 
she died in the OR. They didn't believe her. And then she said, yeah, but I saw the red shoe on the ledge outside the room somewhere in the hotel. And they went and they found the shoe. Famous story. And so some pop out of your body in the OR. Some people go down the tunnel. Some people go to a place that's like hypercorporeal and hyper music and hyper colors. And some people go to a place like I went to, which is a place of non-being and no thing. And you actually had an experience of getting to feel all the suffering that you caused other people in your life. I did. Multiplied. By 10,000 times. Right. Not everybody who writes no, about near-death experiences has that experience. No. So it's fascinating how different people can have almost completely different experiences. Yes. I think that there's a variety. I think that there's not enough information yet on what the varieties and the parameters are of those varieties. But there are now, as a result of a lot of books being published, a lot of people talking, a lot of near-death experiencers. There's a global movement now talking about it. So we're just now beginning to really understand what people's experiences were, and it's going to be up to somebody, and there are some people who are doing this now. PMH Atwater and Pim von Lommel and a few other scientists are trying to collect and correlate and analyze the data. And there's a variety of experiences for sure, and so I have a theory, but it's only a theory, is that God gives you the messaging that you're capable of receiving. Or it's being translated into a, a language, a symbology that you can relate That's to. what I'm saying. Yeah. Right. And that, and that happens with the voice who speaks to you or the angel that comes to you, but it also happens post-death uh, until you reach the oneness, at which point symbols... Right. no longer apply. And even terms like God and angels and things like those are symbols to represent something that you can yes. relate to or even begin to relate to because yes. often it's representing something that is so far beyond what we can yes. conceive of. Yes. So all the language that I use is symbolic and metaphoric. Mm -hmm. It can't be anything else. Anchored in your, your background. Anchored in, yes, anchored not only in my background and my cultural context, my historical context, education, language, all those, all those things that create the filter of my brain, mm -hmm. but also in the tradition. I intentionally, after this experience, I decided to try to understand what had happened to me. And to do that, I needed a language. I needed concepts. And as an undergraduate, I discovered the transcendentalists and the Tao, Te Ching, and Hindu mythology. And so I decided to look in Western Christian contemplation and mysticism. I got my graduate degree at Yale in that, and a div degree, and used the language of the mystical geniuses of the West from 900 to 1600 in order to frame the concepts for self-understanding. That was your preferred language? I preferred that language simply because I came to understand that I could become a Sanskrit scholar and understand Hinduism, but I had to learn Sanskrit first. For practical reasons. I was That's totally, great. It was totally That's practical. Yeah. And my, conc my conclusion early on was that uh, globally there are mystical geniuses, Rumi, Kafir, to name a few, and uh, Teresa of Avila, Julian of Norwich, Hildegard of Bengen, who have different language structures to talk about it, but who often frequently reach the place of union of non-self. And when we're talking about the union of non-being, 
you know, non-duality. Non-duality. That's right. When you experience no self with a small s. Beyond being or non-being. It's just beyond it, beyond anything we can conceive, conceive of with language. Of. Right, exactly. Or with our imaginations. Right. And so if you travel to a place like that, or been taken, as I have, in order to discuss it with yourself, to understand it, you have to have a language to do that with. Mm-hmm. And so I decided, because I was raised Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic, I come from a Christian background, I decided to use the language of the Westerners, because just as in the East, Westerners have this experience too. Right. You know, it's a human global. It's a global, th- it's a global thing. Yeah. And so I chose to adopt. It's a human. It it's is. a human thing. We're built this way. Yes. Which is not to say that uh, the planet is 6,000 years old, just for the listeners to understand <laughs> that it's closer to 13 billion year old universe, et cetera, evolution and all that. But I think the universe is made of matter and energy, but it's secretly made of love. And that's how it seems to me inside of human beings. The core of matter is a vibrational frequency. Well, well, scientifically, we don't know that quite yet. But we are. We believe that that's true, you and I. Um, but scientifically, we're down to quarks. And and they're going to keep peeling that back. But I think that there's going to be an I think there's going to be an interface that's not perceivable by from this side. Right. String theory is is still just a theory. Yeah, but but and the way they're looking at DNA as being a resonant frequency, a vibrational thing. Well, yeah, they're they're and those are all metaphors. Metaphor. Right. They're all metaphors. Metaphors for things that can't really be contained in language. Right. Because we, you know, because you have to also toss into, into that all the things that we know about physics, like the weak force and the strong force, and gravity, um, and um, those sorts of things as well. I think physics, astrophysicists, are the theologians of the twenty-first century because they're asking the questions of who are we, we are, where are we from, what are we made of, without a lens of mythology impeding their vision, and so with mathematics. They approach the reality without preconception. Or they're trying to. Or they're trying to, yeah. As little as possible. And so when I think that all things are made of vibration, I don't know scientifically that that's true. My experience is not scientific. I mean, the things I'm talking about, I can't prove. There's no empiricism here at all. Right. And and, and uh, part of the reason why I finally came out to talk about this stuff is because I got to the place in my job where it became necessary for me to tell the truth about who I am and who I became because of this experience in order to, well, to have the people understand. I was a minister and there was a, an embezzlement and it was a, a terrible thing for eight years of my ministry, including trying to defrock me, ruin me financially, hurt me personally, ruin me professionally, because the closer we got to the truth, the more the powers tried to prevent this, because they had a lot to lose. And of course, the person who was actually doing it, she went to jail. But in the process, you almost became a casualty of it. Yes, it was a terrible, terrible thing. And so bad that it's actually a chapter in a book called Living Stones that I didn't write. And so after this entire terrible thing that happened for so many years, somebody said to me on Sunday morning, you must have had a lot of faith to put up with us and what we did to you as I climbed into the pulpit. And I think to myself, I don't have any faith at all. I am not a believer. I have no faith. 
and I have no doubt that God is real. And I, and I need to finally tell these people that you may think that it was my faith that made me endure this, but that wasn't it at all. It's simply that I know that I'm known by God. I know that God is the realest thing there is. I know where I'm from. I know where I'm going. I know what oneness is. I'm unafraid because of that. You've had the direct experience of that in what you know as your visceral sense of being yes. or, or wh however you might describe it. Yes. The Tao Te Ching, of course, begins by saying the truth that can be told is not the real truth. Or, yeah. Yes, it can't be said because it's a place of no So we'll no get thing. that established right up front. Right up front. And then we'll get into as much nuance as we can, but first we establish that. And that's why you need to use symbol and metaphor and why I needed to find concepts and language in order to give it some structure, knowing all the way along that I can never really say it. Right. Like you used the term God. I am very reluctant to use that term because I... It has baggage. It has so much yeah. cultural baggage. Sure. And, and I want to make this opening a possibility for understand, for experience as widely available as possible. So lots of other words I use. Divine, holy, source, wisdom, oneness, love. My favorite is love. My favorite <laughs> is love, too. I also use universe. Yeah, I don't use universe because, because universe designates a physical structure. Or it can. Primarily, it does in most. Primarily, yes. And that's why I tend away from that word because that's just me. Right. I should I should modify. When I think of the universe, I'm actually thinking like the universe in terms of not just this one timeline, but all possible. Yeah, that gets into multiverse, right. and multiverse is bigger than universe, um, and there's lots of different ways to think about that. That's why I stay away from the word universe. Yeah. Just because I think that it gives the misnomer. Yeah, I agree. I'm a, I'm a panentheist, okay? Yeah. The divine being is in all things all the time. Right. And I'm not a panentheist because I've reached that rational conclusion. That's what I saw when I was right. dead. And I'm, <laughs> um, I'm totally in agreement with you. And, and I'm, I feel the same way. I grew up not quite as an atheist atheist, but seeing people growing up in New York City, people who went to church on Sundays and acting all pious, and then the rest uh, of the yeah, week, yeah, yeah. they were, they were right. complete self-centered yep. jerks. They're just themselves when they're not in church. Exactly. They're who they really are when they're not in church. And well, well, thank God they had the opportunity to try to be a better person on Sunday morning, at least one day a week. Or somebody <laughs> convinced them that they, they either had to, otherwise uh, well, yeah. the fear of God, yeah, well, the unknown the... God that they haven't ex really experienced or don't even really know, but they have enough respect for the fear that there's the possibility that they will be damned and sent to this mythical place of hell. Yeah, but I, I consider back to hell again when I felt all the pain that I'd caused in my life intentionally and unintentionally. I've since that time, since the writing of my book, I read Catherine of Genoa. In Catherine of Genoa's book, 1500s, she describes her mystical genius unitive experience with the divine, not a near-death experience. She felt the divine fire of purgative love. So the suffering that I went through when I was dead by suffering all the pain I'd ever caused in my life, juxtaposed to all of my rationalities or emotional needs for causing that pain and finding myself feeling shame in comparison to the divine light. The burning suffering I went through as I felt the suffering that I gave to others, and so here's the thing, 
the suffering I gave away, actually, I gave to myself, mm -hmm. okay? Right, because so, we're not separate no. from the experiences that everyone else is having. They're all happening in the, in the same field that we coexist in yes. with everything and everyone. And so when you, you, when you give away pain, you get to keep that. You give away love, right. you get to keep that too. Right. And so my experience, the way I symbolize it, is a divine fire of hell, purgative love. And it cleansed me. I no longer had to have these things from the world that had no value in heaven. I didn't have to carry them with me, and they were cleansed from me. The love that I carried with me, the love I gave away, and the love that was given to me became a lens through which I perceived the divine, infinite love. As I saw myself and uh, experienced the pain I gave away, and saw the universe as non-perfection and the understanding that we're made imperfect and it's not our fault we're made imperfect. But I did bring the pain with me. And, and it's all part of the whole thing. It's all part and of the we, whole thing. And you can't thing. separate any of it out of it. No. And it's only because we have this illusion of a kind of a timeline of a sequence of events that we can isolate the experience of hell and it's possible to think that that's a separate location as well. There are all sorts of illusions we can create about this entire wholeness that, that exists always and simultaneously. Yeah, I don't even know if we, if we create it so much as we're blind to the other reality. Well, it, when I say create, I mean it's an illusion that, that's maybe culturally generated that we tap into or it's adopted. Yeah, I think that there's social and economic and religious things that we adopt, but I think that the structure of the entire universe is imperfection. And because it's, it, the whole thing is covered in a veil, every human being is, by nature of being born into this world of matter and energy, is prevented from seeing perfection. It's just the way it functions. And there's a mathematical thing that there's balance plus one, that the universe is always offset by something that, yes. that prevents there from being absolute harmony. Because if there's absolute harmony, absolute peace, there would be no existence. There would be no tension for things to, to evolve or to be to create. I understand to go anywhere. I understand what you mean. Yeah. I'm referring reason. when I when I'm referring to perfection, I'm not referring to the universe whatsoever. I'm talking about the divine being with a capital P. Perfection as a, a part of the for lack of a better term, part of the personality or character of the divine of perfection. And so So uh, that this world can never be that. Because cannot be. Because because if it was, it's an emanation from that. Correct. Yeah. And you know, I was thinking of Einstein's universal constant, lambda, and his conception was that there was a universal constant, and they've discovered it's universal constant plus one, and the dark matter in between the galaxies might be popping in and out of existence, and these pairs expanding the universe against gravity, mm -hmm. and so it's a kind of a plus one thing. It's just yeah. I don't think I said that very well, but That's I'm not okay. a physicist. When I'm talking about perfection, I'm not talking about anything here. Yeah. And I'm talking about everything here being, as you said, like an emanation. Therefore, it's an imperfection, and, and it's an imperfection that we didn't cause. I may have intended to cause people pain, but it wasn't my fault that I could do that. Right. It's just being human that right. allows me to do that. Because we're exploring. While we're in this world, we're just like children test the limits. It's just yeah. totally normal. It's to not do that would actually cause concern to many people. Something's wrong with Junior here. He's, he's not exploring the world. Right. That's right. He's not 
exploring what will happen if he pokes his sister. One more or, time. <laughs> you know, it's discovery. It's exploration. I think we push back and forth against each other and find out what our limits are. Right. And, um, and what works. And what works and what doesn't. And some people push really hard and have fewer, few limits and cause more pain. Usually for themselves, well, always, more than any. Else. As it turns out in death, that is the truth, at least what happened to me. And I don't expect anybody to believe what I have to say, nor do I care whether that's your experience, because ultimately the thing that I'm trying to discover in my near-death experience community is how many of us came back with the same message. And it's been my experience so far that many of us if not all of us, but many, maybe even most of us, come back with a message of universal divine love. Right. That seems to be the universal constant. Yes. There are many other aspects that are yes. different. And if this is the message that we're getting, that love is the thing that matters, the sharing and the giving of love, so it turns out that the more you give away, the more you get to keep. And the more you experience directly. Right. And people say, what's the purpose of life? I think the purpose of life is to love. I think it's really it. And to give love away and to gather love in because, and I don't think it's, people talk about earth being a school, you know, where I come to learn. Well, when I was dead, I knew everything I needed to know. There was nothing I couldn't know. Anything I wanted to know, I instantly knew. Not like I had to go through the process of studying books and, you know, going to libraries and I knew all of it all at once. Mm -hmm. And so I don't understand how this is a school if when I die, I will go from kindergarten to, you know, seven doctorates all at once in a wink of an eye. That's just where I'm at. Which right. leaves me with the question, what's the purpose? And since love was the lens that was the most important thing I brought with me when I died was love. And if that's the case, then that's the treasure that I should pursue. And if that's the treasure I should pursue, it, maybe that's what everybody needs to pursue. And maybe everybody's built that way anyway. And if only we love our children or we love our dog, or we love our mom, or we love somebody, everybody's capable, maybe the exception of sociopathic narcissists, of experience love. And even that's not their fault. That's a biochemical thing. People talk about evolution, too. And I think evolu evolution is real, right? Things evolve. But I think that the best evolution that I can possibly experience is dying and going through the gate of death back to what I actually am, which is not a human being at all. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a consciousness downloaded into this body, and it's like a robot to me. And I'm, I know that I'm you not. You mean the body. I mean the body. I mean the world. It's a vehicle. It's like the, the world is like this matrix, like the movie The Matrix, except for there's no you know, evil mechanistic overlords. It's more like a real illusion, and that the body is more like a biological robotic artificial intelligence that I'm downloaded into and occupy, even though most of me it's still lives in the cloud. It's something that has evolved over millions of years to be the most effective tool that consciousness can use to unfold. On Earth. In, in this world. On Earth, but not in the world. I think the world represents the universe. Okay. Um, and I would say that that's true, what you're saying so far. Exactly. Uh, on and, Earth. And here on this planet, because our bodies have evolved in relationship to this planet. Right. And we are not alone. You know, there are 100 billion stars in it's, our galaxy. Right. And they're all evolving in relation to the circumstances that support right. and affect them. And one of the things that, that occurred to me 
as a result of the way you describe your experience. In heaven is beautiful. In heaven is beautiful, and at the threshold, which you called heaven, that in this world we have these five physical senses. And if you think of it in terms of bandwidth, our ability to perceive. Oh, it's very narrow. It's very narrow. It's incredibly narrow. Yes. And I thought about how you talked about what you perceived in heaven. It was just gloriously beautiful. And that when you came back into your physical body, this whole world, even the most beautiful sunsets and beautiful landscapes, seemed dull and flat by comparison. By comparison. And it occurred to me that it could be just because we're perceiving these things through these very limited set of receptors. Not just the receptors, but the whole system. The whole system. And that when we're free of our physical body, we're not limited to that tiny narrow bandwidth. We have perhaps a full... We're expansive. And we have a full perspective. Something... Or fuller. Right. And way, way, way beyond what we experience Uh, here. Way, way, way beyond. And I've had some tastes of that, like... When I was young, up until the age of 18, I had recurring this experience of expanding Mm. while I was awake, physically awake. In and out of your body at the same time? In and obviously beyond my body at the same time. Expanding infinitely to the size of the universe. And then after being satisfied that it would just keep going on forever and ever and ever, shrinking back down, and then shrinking down to infinitesimally tiny, tiny size to the extent that it was like being way out in outer space, and, but being fully conscious, awake, and having that visceral sense that this was my body that was experiencing. I was experiencing this in my body, but obviously it wasn't my limited physical body itself. It was some, some kind of... Some other part of your body that's not Some mostly, other aspect of my body. Aspect, right. yes. Yeah. And that, that kind of experience happens, not that specific experience, but that kind of experience happens a lot to people and people don't talk about it. Right. And the more we talk about it, the more we find that it's common, especially if the most rational people begin to talk about these experiences because it gives them more credibility to the rest of us who might be uh, a little more woo-woo. But I think it's a universal thing. I think, every, I think lots of people have these kind of experiences. Right. And I, I've heard stories of, of hardcore atheists talking about who, who've emerged from the hardness of that shell to say, you know, until I heard enough of these stories from other people, I just couldn't even begin to acknowledge this experience that had happened to me way back. That was so foreign to me that I compartmentalized it and buried it. Right, because it's not rational. It threatens everything that I believe myself to be. Right, which actually comes back to the whole idea that I'm not really interested in people believing me because on the day they die, they're going to find out on their own, and that's good enough for me. And it's not about belief. <laughs> it's not about belief. It's about what, what it, is and what you actually experience. So if you don't experience or someone else doesn't experience, that's okay. We're all on our own paths at our place, and that's okay. And that's part of love, too. Uh, it is. And then once you pass through the, the gate of death, then you find out who you really are. Right. And each person does experience it differently, at least at the threshold level, they experience well, it differently. Yes. And, but like, they come back. And so... Right. Because it's, it's, it's still being filtered through our conditioning yes. and how we can translate the experience. Yes. In the past year, I've read five different accounts near death 
experiences. And Anita Morjani talks about how mm -hmm. she conceptualized the threshold of her experience as being like this beautiful mountain range. But beyond the mountain range, she could see this golden glow. Mm. She couldn't get there because she was just at this threshold place. But she knew that when she actually completely left her body behind, that's where she would go. So she didn't have the experience of that. Yes, but she saw that it was. Right. But until you make that full transition, you're in that threshold state, which is incredibly yes. gorgeous and beautiful and full of love and also potentially full of pain as well, full of everything. It depends on how, th on your own experience. I think it depends on what happened with the particular person's experiences. Exactly. And there are variety. Yeah. So you talk about using prayer to enter into emptiness. Mm. Could you talk about that? Yes. So meditation and prayer is an access point to the divine. And I want to go back to where I'm from. And one of my part of my studies was to try to figure out how to do that. And it turns out that the meditation and prayer is the access point. And not prayer like asking for riches or a job or, you know, the girlfriend or whatever it is. It's a prayer that asks only for the oneness of being, seeks only, as Jesus said, heaven first above all things, love God above all things. That's kind of prayer to focus and to make the, as he, he says, when your eye is made single, your body will be filled with light. And so that's the pursuit I've been on for 40 years, is to try to make my eye as singular as possible so that I can have just a drop more here in order to make it more palatable to live here and also in order to keep my eye turned to the largest part of myself which isn't returned yet i never will so it's very simple you practice meditation you practice a prayer you listen that's what it's all about it's about listening focused getting your mind out of the way and listening with a sort of the woo wee the the inactive action Right, the Wu Wei. Right, that's yeah. what I'm saying, Wu Wei, that's it. Yeah. And uh, the inactive action. And so that's what I do. I practice meditation, and I, and I bring the meditation into my yoga practice too. Only instead of using a mantra or a prayer, I use my body as my focal point, my body and my breath, and I drive my mind through my physical body, feeling all my muscles and all my bones in order to try to locate, which I've now done, chakras and mulas in order to move the energy between them. And that's one aspect of what I do. And the other aspect is simply learning to practice emptying my mind of myself, getting out of the way. And being just fully present. Yes. Just a, like a Zazen style of uh, meditation with an intent toward the divine. And actually getting beyond the intention of just being well, when present. It, when it really works, exactly. Yeah. It doesn't, it can't always be in that place, but right. yes. There's, there's all sorts of frictions and tensions that arise at times, confusions or... Or just wandering mind even. Right. Anything. But yeah, the whole point is to get to the place of non Stresses. Yeah. Being human. Like a, a body of water settling to the point where you can just see through it clearly. Yes. And, and let things pass by you um, and not hold them. Mm-hmm. Or maybe into the place even where there is no thing passing by you. Or in the state of presence, things pass by, but they're not separate aspects of the experience itself because 
we're no longer identifying. We're, we're not plugged into the brain circuitry it's, of right. of creating a story. It's observing of, the story of rather separateness than being and individuality. The story. Right. Right. Our story becomes the universal story, or everything, including what's beyond everything. To the capacity that the human being can experience that while still in the body. Right. And that's a very interesting thing. I'm sure you must have had conversations with people who actually embody that fully awakened state. Yeah, I don't think there is such a thing as a fully awakened state. Because if you're fully awakened, maybe in the body, you wouldn't be in the body anymore. Hmm. I have met people who radiate the divine light so strongly that you could feel it across a room. They wouldn't consider, like the my, my spiritual advisor, I he was asked, what's it like to be you? He said, I used to be asleep and now I'm awake. But also, when I heard him say that, it was 20 years before the last time I heard him say anything. And he was more awake 20 years later than he was when he first said that. And so I think that because the infinite is infinite, there's never an end point of awakeness until you reach the state of union, which may happen here. I've never, I've had the state of union when I'm not in my body, but it's never happened here. And so... It's as if the physical body has this gravity to it that holds us back. Yeah, of necessity. It's like the way the thing works. Right. Um, and, and you can leave your body and have a divine experience. And people have out-of-body experiences, shamanic experiences. M my practice of meditation isn't to try to leave my body. My practice of my meditation is simply to create a singular eye and focus it on the divine and let the divine, if, if that's the choice, by grace, uplift me out of my body and bring me into a divine state of being that has nothing to do with my physicality. And not to make that happen, not to choose that happen, but to make myself available to that happening. And that happens. Mm -hmm. um, and when I'm in that state of, of being, I'm still less than awake because the only awakened thing in that state of being is the divine itself. Okay, so when you're referring to the term awakening, you're referring to the, the totality, totality of all beingness. Of all beingness yes. and beyond beingness. That's my reference point. Yes, okay. When I'm using the term awakening, I'm, I'm encompassing it within the limitation of having a physical body as well. And the uh, issue of sort of what you talked about as being in two places at the same time. Which I'm always at like that. Not a single moment of my life has gone by since I came back the first time, that that's not been the case. I can ignore it. Uh -huh. I can, like, if I'm... Don't I, you get distracted? Like, when you experience stresses and, and other kinds of distractions, are you ever distracted from that? I distract myself intentionally from it. Okay. <laughs> okay. I definitely try to shut this thing off. But when you're not trying to do that, you're aware of it. Yeah. Okay, it, so it, you're carrying that with uh, you. All the time. I can't shut it off. Okay. I can turn it down. Uh -huh. But I can't shut it off. Okay. And, and, and as a matter of fact, that's really who I am, mm -hmm. not what I am here. And part of my struggle, most near-death experiencers, it takes maybe nine or ten years after the experience to reintegrate into this world. Ah. And so it's a hard thing. And, you know, when I was doing it, I was doing it on my own. And you were still very young. I was still very young, but, I, you know, I decided that I would search out teachers, but I decided to search out dead teachers. And the reason why I chose dead teachers and the books that they left behind is because I figured, rightly so, I think, the value of a spiritual book 
is proportional to how long it gets handed down over centuries. Ah. If it really has mm -hmm. wisdom, it's going to be recognized over and over again. If it doesn't, it'll be forgotten. And, you know, not every book that is forgotten should have been forgotten, but right. the, on a percentage basis, books that have been handed down for five or seven or 800 years have been handed down for a reason. Mm -hmm. And so I, I sought out these dead people, men and women, to learn contemplation and to learn a language of mystical genius. And my real goal was learn how to pray in order to reopen my inner door because all I crave is that which I am. And for me, from my direct experience, when I can enter into that state of presence, it's like a portal that so, makes me fully available to yes. any possibility. And as you said, divine will can give you any experience that, I would that say, may be appropriate, regardless of what we may desire. Like early in a spiritual seekers, we tend to crave experiences to either validate what we're doing or, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. or to give us a signpost that we're on the right track. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, you've had enough experience. Your nervous system has become subtle enough to recognize the state of presence because we all have the experience of presence, but I think our nervous system is the filter through which we yes. we sense and yes. perceive things. So like the body of water that is completely still because the nervous system is responding to our experience when the body of water or our being is still to the point where there is no disturbance, then we can see clearly. Yes, where... and, and that there's a residual with the, with the practice of seeing clearly that supersedes the physical experience. And so the deeper one travels into the divine being, the wider one opens the channel inside myself, the more one dumps out the crap that's built up in the bucket, the more the presence becomes real even when we're not in pursuit of it. And so the right. perception actually doesn't occur through the body. The perception occurs through the divine soul, through the consciousness that's, that, that we actually are. Right. Um, and then, and it, yes, it gets filtered out through, we feel it through our bodies, but eventually what can happen is that you feel it through the soul itself. Right. The portal opens once the distractions are no longer distracting. Yes. There's once, the clarity once we, to see the portal one, and, to, right. and to actually merge with the portal, in a sense. When, when we come to understand that the ego we perceive as who we are is not who we are, as we strip away that on a layer by layer by layer through meditation and prayer, we strip away our false self, the more we're able to abandon the distraction of false self mm -hmm. and see a deeper and wider and brighter presence of the divine that is inside us as a, not like the totality of the wholeness of God is in me, but yes, it is, but only in the divine ultimate sense of the being as it's filtered out into even my soul, it's still less than the oneness itself. And so I guess, what am I saying? I'm saying that every single human is like a photon of light and the absolute light itself, but it, we're not the source of the light. Right. We're the same, but we're not the source. Right. Sort of like the holographic principle. Sure. Yeah, I can see that. And so I guess what I'm saying is the deeper the practice of meditation and prayer that occurs, the less the body matters. Experientially, it's, yes, definitely people who are young who seek divine experiences 
in order to validate or to whether we're on the right path or not. And those are really important. But the deeper one goes into the reality of a spiritual life, the more one finds that it's not necessary. Right. And the more one finds it's not necessary, the more likely they are to come. So you abandon your desire for them, and then they come. As long as you want them, maybe you don't get them. Right. Um, and that's because it's not the spiritual experience that really matters. It's the turning of the eye to the divine. It's really that thing that matters most because we're not our physical experience. We're not our body. And even these things that we talk about, spiritual experiences, people talk about past lives, that's all about the material world. It's all about the physical world. Mm -hmm. And that's not the point. Mm -hmm. It's the other world that's the point. Mm -hmm. And that's what prayer and meditation gives you access to a little bit. You get a little glimpse here. And the greatest glimpse I've ever had here is nothing compared to what is on the other side. It's still just a drop. Mm-hmm. And so to be awakened, only the awakened one is awakened, and all the rest of us are on the journey. Right. And that's one of the beautiful things about love is that love has that miraculous ability to work at the level that we're at Yeah. and work on each layer that's available to us, the next layer mm-hmm. and the next layer. And that's what I've been experiencing for in a very conscious way for the last about 12 years of relating to the struggles and the suffering of life in a very new way. By looking at it through the lens of love? Through feeling it, feeling Mm. the love and and having the intention to love. That's prayer. And to not allow anything that occurs in this world to shut down my heart, my ability to experience love. So that any time that I do have an experience that is constricting me, then it's like my intention. I reconnect with that intention. No, I don't want to go. That's not the direction I want to go in. And it's now programmed in me. Come to live in you. To the degree that I can't be separate from that for very long before I'm pulled back to the perspective that, oh, yeah, love is the most important thing. And the way I relate to everything and everyone, that's the way I want to approach this world and everything in it. To me, that is the closest I can get to that experience of what you would call the divine or God. Yes, for everyone. Yeah, and you don't even need while to, here. While here, and you don't need. You can be an atheist and still love your children exactly. and experience and this that very same, same thing. thing exactly without the language. Yes, yes, exactly. So then, that to me is why the salvation of all humanity or maybe all the, all the sentient beings in all the universe, and maybe all the unsentient beings in all the universe, is still love. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that we all experience. Even my dog loved us. me. And my cat, you know, my old cat. I'm not sure she really loved me. <laughs> <laughs> She's a cat. But, you know, I knew my dog did, for mm-hmm. sure. And, I, you know, I loved my cat. And I'm sure dogs love other dogs. I mean, and dolphins probably love dolphins, and elephants love elephants, and... And love is also an experience of something that is beyond our conception of of love. Oh, well, that's the one thing. We have one word for 10,000 things. Mostly we have one word for one thing. But love, we can't even define. We know it when we feel it. And love is one of those terms that could be very skillfully used to define or to encompass everything. Yes. I had this rabbi who was one of my teachers, and... There's a word in the Hebrew scriptures called Adonai, translated as Lord. He said the real translation is beloved. And that was my experience of 
the divine was love. And I know there were different aspects of it, love, you know, charity, beauty, knowledge, understanding, awe, bliss, paradise, the list is long, but they were all one love. Right. And Rumi, his word of choice was beloved as well. Yeah. Well, I'm not surprised. He's a mystic, most read poet in the United States, at least 10 years ago, that was true. And you call yourself a mystic and and your new book that you're working on. I am a mystic. I was born this way. had my first vision when I was a kid. And then I had another angel experience. And then I had these two visions on the Appalachian Trail the year before. I was always in touch with the divine. I seemed to have been born this way. And then I died and came back and pursued the mystical geniuses learned from them, and then applied their practices because they weren't near-death experiencers. And if they could find, seek the divine and uh, ecstatic and beatific visions and experiences of unity, I could do that too. Mm-hmm. And the result of that practice kind of magnified my mysticism. Uh, if I'm going to be pinned down as a Christian, which I would put myself as a Christian mystic or a mystical Christian, but I'm not really a religious person. I belong to the divine, and I'm in, only in pursuit of the oneness, and whatever structures I use for language are just those. But yeah, I consider myself a mystic, and I think I'm not the only one. I think most people who have a conversion experience, or a voice speaks to them like you had, or they have an angel visitation, we all have, many of us, maybe all of us, we just don't talk about it, are accessible to the divine, who can give us a mystical experience and move us from some kind of belief to some kind of knowing. We know this thing happened to us. It's super private. We can't talk about it. It sounds crazy and kooky. But we now know, for instance, if you see a deceased loved one a week or two after or a month after and you know that they're well, you can't unknow that they're well. For the rest of your life, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, Joe's cool. He's all right. He's fine. You might grieve him, but you still know he's well. And that kind of movement from belief to knowing is in the mystical spectrum. There's like a scale, and on the high end, you get... Hildegard of Bengen and Julian in Norwich. And on the low end, you probably get people who see their dead loved ones. So I think we're all born that way. But I also think that there are people who are like mathematics. Everybody can add and subtract pretty much. And that's doing mathematics. And then you get the computational astrophysicists who can do high-level math that I can't do. And they're the geniuses. It's still mathematics. Everybody can do math. Everybody can do God. Everybody can do spirituality. It's just that some people are better at it than others because they have a tendency that way. They're born that way. And then they use the tools that are available to make themselves better at it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of the way I see it anyway. So we never quite finished... Your story on the mountain. Uh, you'll have to buy the book. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, but so long story short, I'll cut to the chase. So hypothermia advanced to the state of being hot, going through. If you want to look up the stages, you can look them up and find what they are. We went through all of them. And so finally I got hot and uh, I unzipped my coat, which I knew better then because I was ski patrol. But I didn't care. I was stuck on the mountain. I knew I was going to die. By that point, I, death was pretty clear to me. And I went through the stage of falling asleep and waking up, falling asleep. I would wake up because I'd hit the rock. I'd collapse and hit the rock, and that would wake me up. And then I climbed up from one of these sleeping experiences. And as I stood there, I watched my peripheral vision blacken in a big, huge circle, like a stage light, fade to black on the one person on the stage. It came rapidly in and went black. Kind of a reverse tunnel. Like a reverse tunnel, right. It's sort of like from wide view to pinpoint. 
and then the pinpoint blackened as well and felt myself collapse. And I was still awake, like conscious in my mind, but I felt my body not working and everything was dark. And I knew that this was not asleep, but I didn't understand what was going on. And I didn't feel myself hit the rock. I just was, you know, went black and I felt myself collapse a little bit, but that's as far as that went. And then I was like, okay, I'm still thinking. Why am I thinking? How can I possibly be thinking if I'm asleep? Well, I mustn't be asleep. And all these things are running through my head. And that blackness became like a vision of eternal blackness that reached out into infinity in front of me. And from that way far away infinity, like a a metaphorical language, like a pinpoint of a consciousness that was contained and expansive at the same time, rushed toward me faster than the speed of light from a great distance or through a dimensional, I don't know what. Wormhole or something. Yeah, something. And it came to me and and it filled my entire vision and it communicated to me. And even though I could see that it was also localized. It was these two things at once. And it communicated to me telepathically without language. I'm taking you as it rushed toward me. And I thought, no, you're not. I don't know what this is, but you're not taking me. And I willed myself to stay, not to leave. And I was just taken. And then I went through this sort of tunnel, sort of, but not like a narrow tunnel, but like all this darkness that was surrounding me. I was sort of carried over a distance. And then I was, next thing I knew, I was in an infinite darkness that was illuminated. And it was infinite in every direction, and it was completely dark, but it was also completely illuminated. And I was no longer a physical body. I was, I describe it as an orb of consciousness. I I was a non-thing. Anything you can conceive of as a thing, I was not that. And I was much bigger than I was as a human being. And I realized, uh, this is who I am. I thought I was that, but no, this is, this is who I am. This is who I've always been. I've always been this. And I was utterly unafraid. I knew what I was. And, and I tell this in a sequence of time, but there's timelessness. All time and no time, all at once. And I could see in every direction, like my consciousness was one big eyeball, but not one big eyeball that would point in one direction, but one big eyeball that could see everything all at once. And there was like a portal opened in the darkness that was nearby me and it was like humongous and it was shimmering and transparent and translucent and flowing all at the same time and I could see an even darker tunnel that went off into infinity that I knew was going to be like this instantaneous travel and I touched this with my being. I touched the the flow that was transparent and translucent and it was living and it was all life. It was life with the capital L. It was all being and it flowed into me as soon as I touched this and I experienced all these things at once. I experienced being known. I experienced being fully known, utterly nothing about me unknown. I experienced seeing the long tail of my soul going back everlastingly from a spark of divine light being that I was a created being and the presence of creator. I saw Peter as like a little thin layer. I saw other layers cutting or entering or leaving the long tail of my soul, but none of them were me. I was this other long thing, and these things were like, even like Peter was some kind of subset, but not the thing itself. And I heard the voice, which had no language and no gender and no words, just telling me I was completely known and created, and I could see all of the universe 
of humanity and all of matter and energy being less than perfection. I could see it as being made this way and not its fault that it was made this way. And then at the same time, I heard my name called, which was not Peter. It's the essence of the grounding of my being. It's unpronounceable to me. It has no language to me. But I still hear the call inside of me forever being called this name. And then I went through all the suffering that I ever caused in my life, from intentionally and unintentionally, from the point of view of the person I gave it to. And from my point of view, all the reasons and emotional causations of those sufferings, intentional and unintentional. And it turns out that I had actually not given them to anybody. I had given them to me and that they were mine and they were 10,000 times bigger than I ever thought they were. But also there was this lens of love that I mentioned before that I also carried with me through which I could see the divine being of love, not the totality of it, but some of it. And my comparison was not to other people that I had hurt or to my own self for either the love that I had brought with me or the pain that I had brought with me. But my comparison was to the divine perfection. And I could see utterly that I was imperfect and unworthy of perfection, not because I was a bad person. It's not an unworthiness of being groveling and bad. It's being not the thing itself not being perfection, just being imperfection. And I suffered all this pain. And meanwhile, as I went through this and judged myself as shameful for having not known better than to cause all this pain, when it was so obvious and clear to me that love was eternal and I was a moat in comparison to the multiverse size of the divine love. And the voice kept saying inside of me, I love you, I made you, I know you, nothing is unknown about you, I've always known you, and I've always loved you. I loved you as I made you, I loved you as a creation, I love you, I love you, I love you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you. And then all of the suffering was gone, and I was cleansed of this burden that I carried with me into heaven, and I was immense in size, and I was infilled with as much oneness of being as my consciousness could contain. And isn't that being seen and acknowledged for who we are, what we're all longing for in this world? Oh my God, yes. And all we experience is the imperfection of, of other people's ability to give that to us. Yes, and that's why prayer and meditation and love matter so much, because they're all tastes of this divine thing that we are. And the infinite oneness was way beyond what filled me, but I was still filled with sort of a reduced oneness of purity. And it was pure and love and beauty and And it was joy. still unfathomably huge. Unfathomably so. And one more drop of this oneness. You know that state where you're having great sex and it's almost painful pleasure. One more bit will cause you to be in agony. It was like that. Mm -hmm. There was so much love that one more drop I would have obliterated. And yet all I wanted was that. And I was in this state of adoration, more awe, but also fully conscious. Like anything that I needed to know, I was downloading that like universal size data bits of all the knowledge instantaneously of anything I wanted to know. And then when all this was sort of like completed... I said to the divine, am I dead? And the voice said, yeah, you're dead. And I said, yeah, well, I can't really go now. And the voice said, I want you to stay here. Come. That's such an interesting contrast to many other people's near-death experiences because many people are told it's not your time yet. You have work still to do. And yet you were asked, come. 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 It's time to come home. Do you have any sense why? Uh, only in hindsight. 
And I had another near-death experience in 2015 of a heart attack. Mm. And I chose to stay again for the very same reason that I came back the first time. And that's for the sake of others and their need of me being here. I suppose what my question was of why is not so much your will, but the difference in what you might say is God's will. Well, that's a confusing thing. God welcomed me, wanted me to stay, showed me, gave me more reasons to stay. I still chose to come back. Did God not know that? <laughs> so I, all-knowing, ever-present, so I don't understand, but I do know that I had will. I had choice. And you actually regretted that. Oh, and you've totally, regretted ever since. Totally wrong decision. <laughs> totally wrong decision. But you had the second near-death experience, and you still made the same choice. I did because, and I had planned after, I don't know, 35 years, I had already decided I'm going home first chance I get, you know. But then there was my daughter had a divorce, and there was a baby, and there was abuse, and, you know, who was going to protect the child? My daughter's broke. She's leaving this guy. Who's going to be there for the granddaughter? Who's going to be the man in her life? And it had to be me. And so I chose to come back the second time for my granddaughter. And now it's been four years. She's the star of my life, the joy of my being. I'm her golden love. And to give her the chance in this life to have the most emotionally stable upbringing given her circumstances, and that's a responsibility I chose and accept. And now I'm kind of stuck here. I'm going to have to be here till either I'm irrevocably dead, you know, get hit by a bus, or, you know, I die of old age. I made a commitment to be here for her. And I knew that in my death, even though I regretted coming back here for all those years, I knew that the length of my life was a wink of an eye here. It's nothing when you're dead. It's like, oh, is that fast? That was easy. I'll do that again. <laughs> and that no matter how much people are suffering here in this world, they're still completely loved and okay. Oh, completely loved and okay here, even when you're suffering here. Oh, completely. And that's what makes it a little bit easier to be here. I know that all's well, all was well, and all will be well because love is infinitely greater than you could possibly imagine here or conceive or experience. And because of that, it makes it possible for me to stay here. Mm-hmm. And so here I am still, and in terms of the practical ramifications of my coming back my first time, my parents didn't lose another child. My sister had run away and broken my mom's heart and broken her emotionally for a long time. It was 10 years of breakdown. That was the worst it got for her, instead of losing her son, too. And knowing that when she was dead, that all would be well for her was a beautiful thing to see when I was dead, but it didn't save her here from having to suffer the years that she would have to suffer blindly, not knowing what I knew, which was that the best thing that could happen is you could die and you can get out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, suffering ends, you catch by love, that's all good. So I came back that first time and I came back that second time. And and you did it out of compassion. You gave up everything, quite literally everything, Yeah. out of compassion for what you even knew to be an illusion. Yeah. down here. But you loved those manifestations of illusion so much that you chose yeah. to do that. Makes me cry regretful tears. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful thing to, to sacrifice everything, even for an illusion. I mean, Except for this. I know I'm going back. Right. So, so even though it's a sacrifice, I still know I'm going back. Right. And that's something I can totally relate to because I've had that experience where in moments of great stress or having someone deeply angry at me in my presence 
having this experience of being drawn deep down inside myself and going to a place where I felt completely safe, a place of infinite softness and invulnerability, like nothing could harm me. Nothing anybody could do could harm me physically, emotionally, psychically. I was completely in this place of the deepest peace and love and knowing, just so completely, 100% knowing that nothing can touch me in a way that harms me. And that's true in terms of your soul and your consciousness. Your physical body, not so much. But But experiencing that while in my physical body. Right. Well, no, I I hear what you're saying very clearly. You had a glimpse of your everlasting soul. And you self-identified not as your physical body, but as this untouchable, unkillable, right. um, divine, holy being who you actually are. Mm-hmm. And so, when you have that yeah. experience, it gives you that kind of courage, courage. to face anything. Yep. Yes, exactly so. Yes. And from that perspective, it's not about courage. It's just about knowing that... Nothing can... You got nothing nothing, to lose. There's nothing that can harm you. No, you can't lose anything. Because you're already everything. You're already totally connected to everything, and you can't be separated from that. Right. Yes, it's a very empowering thing. Going back to something that you said, you talked about in your near-death experience, you experienced this darkness, this infinite darkness. But the darkness isn't evil. Oh, I know, I know, but... When I, I told you about being told that I would go through a difficult time, but it would be okay. Right after that, I started having these experiences as I was going to sleep every night. I had several different experiences that were occurring, but one of them was finding myself in this infinite darkness and then becoming aware as I'm like rocketing up through these layers of darkness and eventually like rocketing through infinite layers of darkness, leaping, physically leaping out of my bed, gasping for breath. And this happened every night for a period of time. Was it a fearful experience? It was just a purely direct experience. There was no fear. I felt it as visceral being in this infinite darkness and as if there's some primordial force moving me to come out of it. Yeah, sounds like a spiritual experience to me. Sounds like uh, a glimpse of, well, your eternal self. You would think that I was responding out of fear. I don't really you didn't know try how to make, you, But you didn't try to make this experience. I didn't experience. try. It just happened to you. Yeah, so it's another experience where the divine gives us help. Or gives us an experience to process. That's what I mean. Yeah. So you don't need a near-death experience to have a transformative spiritual experience. I think the biggest difference between... The two kinds of experiences, the spiritually transformative and out-of-body experiences people have, which I would say that's kind of an out-of-body experience. Well, I had a real out-of-body experience roughly around the same time, too, where I was riding a bicycle down a hill and the brakes, I discovered, didn't work. And I realized as I was going around this long turn, there was an intersection in the middle of the hill and there were cars going through. And just as I got to within maybe... 20 or 30 feet of the intersection, I popped out. Yeah, that happens. I popped out about 20, 30 feet above me, did a 360. Right, checking out the scene. Checking out the scene very quickly. And then I watched myself skillfully maneuver perfectly in between cars, 
wipe out in such a way that I end up sliding under a car, but unharmed. completely unharmed, except yeah. for all the gravel well, in my yeah, skin. Not dead yeah. and broken. Not broken. <laughs> nothing broken. <laughs> right, exactly. And I snapped out of it. But right before yeah. ejecting out of my body, I had done a quick assessment to realize there was no escape from the situation. There was a yeah. deep ditch to my right, and the bike lane right before were these signs so that there was no bike lane once I reached the intersection. So I was out of options, and boop. Right. That happens. Yeah. I've... Well, there's lots of stories like that. There's a couple of kinds of out-of-body experiences. There's that kind that you described, but there's also the kind of a body experience where you leave your physical body in a dream state and you mm -hmm. enter into a place like you described where you rocket through layers of darkness. Mm. You can be either be in a, like a spirit self, which is very similar to your physical form, mm -hmm. or your soul consciousness self, which is not physical at all. There's no, like, you wouldn't recognize. If you, if you looked in a mirror, you wouldn't see yourself. So... The biggest difference between the two kinds of experiences is that in a near-death experience, you're severed from your body. Your body's dead. And you can be sent back to it, right. but you're not connected by the proverbial silver cord that people talk about. Metaphorical, of course. It's, but it's also real. People talk about it as being an astral cord. Sure, the astral cord. Right. Where people travel like through the universe, and all of a sudden have a panic. That, and they're popped back. And right. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, I've had that kind of thing. For sure. But they, you don't get that when you're dead. You know, when you're fully dead, you're, right. you know, that, that, that's gone. You can still be sent back, but you can't make yourself go back. So where are we? I think we've said it all. All right. So I should say uh, peterpanagor.love. That's my website. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, a bunch of YouTube videos out there, places I've spoken all over the country, media conversations all over the world. Two books, Heaven is Beautiful, how Dying Taught Me That Death Is Just the Beginning. It's an audible bestseller now. And Two Minutes for God, which is a collection of 365 brief devotional stories that were part of my television show that I ran for 15 years in Maine. Huh. That was on every day. And I wrote 1,700 scripts. And I was on Just Before the Weather every morning on two NBC stations. Wow. And it was a, an attempt to use storytelling as a mechanism for bringing hope, inspiration, and joy into people's lives. Interestingly enough, sort of related to that, when I was a child growing up in New York City, disillusioned by people you who know, went to church on Sunday, I watched cartoons on Saturday mornings. And the first cartoon on Saturday morning at like 6 o'clock was Davy and Goliath. Oh, yeah, Davy. I loved that show. Yeah, the Methodists I put that totally out. I totally loved that show. They yeah. weren't preachy at all. No. Nope. But the message that they presented in their non-preachy way, I totally resonated with that's a, and that, loved That's that. the, the idea behind the show that I had for 15 years because it was on commercial television. And we were with that TV station when it began as an AM station in 26. And so I was the fifth minister, and the rules were no preaching, no politics, no religion. So you talk about love, you talk about hope, you talk about humanity, you talk about real things. And I used storytelling as a mechanism to do that in 270 words, mm -hmm. each story. And so there's two books, and then working on the third book, and that's where I'm at. I'm torn, speaking. Going to be at the Afterlife Conference in Salt Lake City at the end of the month. 
You also counsel people who've had these kind of experiences and are struggling to make sense of them. I do. I, I counsel exactly well said, spiritual experiences and mystical experiences and near-death experiences. And I've got a growing client list that's global. And if you go to my website, you'll see some data there, peterpanagor.love. You can sign up for an appointment there if you want to. And some people want appointments, some people 10 appointments, some people 30 appointments, depending on what's going on in their world. I'm accessible. I'm wicked human. Um, I have no misconceptions about, you know, being some sort of guru. That's crazy talk. You ask my wife and my kids, they'll tell you how human I am. <laughs> well, what do you, give me, give me a, an example or a sense of that. Let's see how to, oh yeah, here's a really good example. I am a troublemaker. It's a skiing story. And so I went up on a Wednesday to Sunday River a long time ago with a buddy of mine. And we dropped off the top of the mountain, and we ended up at the top of a trail, which was closed. But it was the only trail, and it was a double diamond. Okay, so it's either climb back up or ski down. And just as we were discussing skiing down, a ski patrol shows up. And she says, you know, you can't go down this trail. It's closed. I said, yeah, but we're going to have to climb back up. She said, yeah, you have to climb back up. I said, so what are you going to do if I ski down? She said, I'll take your ticket. I said, how about if I make a deal with you? She said, what? I said, if... I ski down this trail and you can catch me, I'll give you my ticket. But if you can't catch me, I get to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> and she gave a little nod and I was gone. And um, my buddy's like, oh, he didn't want it. He's like, we got to climb back up. We can't break the rules. And I'm like, no way. I'm not going back up. So, yeah, she couldn't catch me. But that's kind of the way I am. Troublemaker. You still have personality. <laughs> totally. <laughs> totally. And it's wonderful to actually just be here sitting across from you and, and doing this live together. Well, I'm glad to be here, too. I'm glad I made it all the way to Vermont. I got a couple of speaking gigs here this weekend, and I'm glad to be here visiting friends at the same time and in this unexpectedly having this great interview with you, Tonio, and I'm grateful to have the opportunity to be here. I'm so grateful. I've enjoyed this so much. Yeah, me too. Peter Panagor is the author of Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death Was Just the Beginning. So again, thank you so much. Peace to you all, Peace. to everybody out there. Yes. Peace to you, Tony. Peace and love.